This episode is brought to you by Prime Video's incredible new film, 13 Lives, based on the gripping true story of the 2018 Thai cave rescue. If you've been listening for a while, you'll know of this story from my all-time favourite episode with Dr. Richard Harris in episode 102. And now you can watch it unravel from August 5th. Be realistic, but also have your dreams and your aspirations. And, you know, you also need to be able to afford to look after yourself in this world. So it's it's a balance between the two things, I think. Take some things personally when it's right to do so and other times just accept that it wasn't your time and it's not a reason to give up and, and to stop. What is hard, in inverted commas, for me is going to be very different to what's hard for someone, but it's all relative and it's all hard. And I think in any situation, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Hello, lovely neighborhood. Today's guest is special for so many different reasons, not least because we were born just three days apart and have so much else in common. You'll hear me say I think we'd be dear friends if we lived in the same city and I've admired this amazing woman for many years from afar. Like many of our guests, you may have heard about Erin Holland in one context that doesn't necessarily represent the entirety of who she is. You might have first encountered her as Miss World Australia 2013, but there is so much more depth and detail to her past that somehow flies under the radar. For example, she not only has an incredible voice, she's actually a classically trained soprano singer, graduated with a Bachelor of Classical Voice from the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, is also qualified in clarinet, music theatre, jazz and tap, and initially dreamt of being on Broadway. Also, like many of our guests, Erin hasn't ended up exactly where she might have planned, but is seizing all her yay nonetheless in presenting, TV work, ambassadorships, and the coolest role ever with the gigantic Pakistan Super League as a cricket presenter. Her experience working with the PSL in such a different culture deserves a whole separate episode, which I actually think we'll try and do next time she's over there. We spoke about it a little bit offline, and if anyone is interested, let us know. We can do a different chat about that. But as promised in the anonymous Q&A episode. It's Erin's journey with fertility and IVF that we're mainly here to chat about today. This is one of the only podcasts Erin has done on the topic since first opening up a little earlier this year about her challenges with conceiving and the IVF process. And I'm so, so honored that she agreed to come on the show and shares so openly and honestly about what it has involved physically, mentally, and emotionally for her so far. I'll let you hear the rest from Erin directly, but I really hope you all learn as much as I did, enjoy her beautiful energy as much as I did, and particularly if anyone is going through anything similar, that this might have helped you even in some small way feel a little bit less alone. Lovely Erin, welcome to Seize the Yay. Yay, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. I've said a couple of times now this, we've had a few false starts, but <laughs> I also said before we started recording that you're one of those people who I haven't had the pleasure of spending much time with in real life, but I just feel like if we lived close to each other, I would be in your pocket. 
Absolutely. I think you should come here. Or I should get down to Melbourne way more often than I do. I think, yeah, we'd, we'd definitely be great mates. But I'm, I'm so happy to be chatting to you. And I feel like I know you anyway. It's it's fine. <laughs> I know. Me too. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, it, yeah, it's just been amazing to watch so many different parts of your journey from afar. You've been such an inspiration and role model, and particularly in the last couple of months and, and maybe year, I think we got married around the same time and then we didn't get our honeymoons at the same time and then we had our replacement honeymoons at the same time that was weird wasn't it like pretty much the exact same time <laughs> very different places we went to but pretty much the exact same time I, I know like, oh my gosh I feel your pain girlfriend we've really had the same kind of journey that, but so happy that we got it done it's done Finally, a year and a half later, wedding and honeymoon is done. <laughs> I'm so happy both of us did one anyway as well because I feel like you could have totally just left that experience as like, oh, we didn't get to do it, then we'll never do it. But it's like you you deserve to have that beautiful little love bubble again, you know? I think so. And there was something quite magic about doing it later. You kind of reconnect and find that again. If you don't straight after the wedding, well, of course you're in that love bubble, but to sort of try and create another one, all that time later was actually a really nice, I think, moment and opportunity to reconnect in a world that's been, well, let's face it, really hectic since we did get married. We thought we were through the worst of it and we really weren't. <laughs> Little did we know. <laughs> Little did we know 2021 was no better than 2020, but really <gasps> glad that, uh, yeah, we got, got the weddings in there when we did for sure. Oh, thank goodness. I just, yeah, I didn't realise how close it actually was until looking back and I was like, wow. Yeah, I think the, the wedding gods were looking down on us just for that tiny little window before all, all hell broke loose for the second half of 2021 for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, as you may know or you may not know, I love to kick off every episode with a little icebreaker before we jump into your story and particularly for people like yourself who are not only incredibly stunning, hugely successful and who often people have walked into your life through a chapter like Miss Universe or a big TV career, it's easy to forget that you're just a human who has many relatable down-to-earth sides to you. So what would you say or what would Cutsy say is the most normal, relatable thing about you? Oh, I mean, deep down I'm just a little bogan kid that grew up in far north Queensland. Like I'm, I'm from Cairns and I say that word bogan with love, like we're, you know, so relaxed, so down-to-earth, just, you know, my childhood was amazing growing up there and Whilst it had none of the industry, none of the life that I, I live these days, it had so many wonderful things that I think have just made me a more relatable person now that I'm doing what I'm doing in, in Sydney. And like, I just I just think at the end of the day, my brother always called me the Bogan Princess. He's like, because you look like, you know, put together on the outside, but deep down we know you're an absolute mess. And I think that's so true. Like it's, <laughs> you know, I'm being a performer. I'm used to putting on a costume or putting on a face of makeup and, and fronting up for whatever my job is that day. But you know, uh, at the end of it, I'd really just rather be in my truckie, sitting on the couch, probably eating a bag of Maltesers and, yeah, just just being really relaxed. And, and I think growing up in Cairns and growing up with the very, very basic, very easy going lifestyle that I had has set me in good stead for, you know, what's been a really crazy, yeah, I suppose sort of eight, nine years of, of living this this career and this life that I have. So yeah, just just a normal, normal little 
Bogan Princess from Cairns. That's what my brother would call me. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I love that so much. It's really interesting that you mentioned your childhood as well, because I think there's, you know, the reason I I spend so much of this show on going right back to the beginning, the way TA is the first section where we trace back all the chapters before the one that people often meet you in. And it's because there's, you know, so much of your life that people do know about, but there's so much from before that, that I don't think many people really ever find out about because it's maybe not the sexy part of your life or the famous part of your life. But I loved reading that, you know, your musical flair. Most people I don't think even knew that you could sing until you started doing more singing videos and that you started at three years old and that your whole first life was even studying at the conservatorium. Like it's just so cool. So can you take us back to your younger self and what you were like as a child, how you got into music and then and then figuring out that that was what you love to do? Yeah, music is the biggest part of my life and it still kind of weirds me out that people don't know that I sing. But like you said, what I'm sort of known for in the industry these days is being a presenter and coming from a beauty queen background. But like I've been singing and playing music and reading music since I was three years old. My dad would sit down with me. He loved music himself. He couldn't afford an instrument when he was a child. So he was very gifted musically and, and had the ear for it, but he didn't have the means to pursue even just playing in school. So it was something that he kind of went, I'm going to throw it on my children as early as I can. If it sticks, great. If it doesn't, at least I've given them the opportunity. And being the firstborn, you know, it was sitting down, playing the recorder, tinkling around, listening to music. I've got such a good education of sort of like 80s, 90s, noughties rock. Thanks, Dad. Because uh, he absolutely <laughs> loved it. Like, you know, to the point when I remember I think I was around seven years old and I wanted an aqua turn back time. I think it was the second song after Barbie Girl. I really wanted that CD. And he was like, how about Time After Time by Green Day? And I'm like, ah. <laughs> or like, thanks, Dad, for this 2 a.m. Matchbox 20 CD. Not what I wanted, but sure, we'll give it a go. And, and yeah, I, I just I just love it. He just sort of pushed his taste of music of me and I absorbed so much of it. Like even down to apparently when I was a child, I was completely nocturnal and I would sleep all day and then I'd rage all night. So dad would sit up and watch rage on TV for hours and hours in the early hours of the morning with me. And I swear I've just absorbed that. And even to this day, I hear music from, yeah, I guess 89, 90 when I would have been super young. And I know the music and I know the words and I don't really know why, but I reckon it's because I've just sat there like a little blob and by osmosis have absorbed all of this music from such a young age. But, you know, I, I started playing the clarinet when I was eight years old. I was actually a very good clarinetist. I, I got all of my examinations up to an Amos, which if you're into music, you'll know that it's I do grades one to eight and then there's other qualifications after that. So music theory, uh, vocal exams, clarinet exams, I think I did music in grade 12. I didn't even sing for that, which I ended up doing at the conservatorium, but I played clarinet and I kind of toyed with the idea of being a professional instrumentalist post-school at university and I sort of figured out when I was around 14 years old when I was also dancing at the same time that I wanted to be on the stage in the musical, not underneath it in the orchestra pit. I was too much of a show pony. I wanted to be <laughs> front and centre. I was like, I don't want to be like sitting underneath playing for the people on stage. I want to be on stage. And mum's like, of course you do. <laughs> no surprises to us, darling. No surprises to us. And growing up in Cairns, you know, it, playing music wasn't cool. If you're a sporty, that was cool. If you're, a, you know, 
someone who wore skate shoes and hung out with the stoners in the backyard. That was cool. It <laughs> certainly wasn't cool to play the clarinet. But luckily I just I always had this feeling of, and don't get me wrong, I hated not being cool. Everyone wants to be cool when they're in school and I really wasn't. I was so tall, so awkward, played a clarinet, big buck teeth, just wanted to be friends <laughs> with everyone, really wasn't. But but I always knew like I'm good at this and this yeah. is my place and, and, and I found my people and, and I never ever once strayed away from not wanting to do what I was doing with music and, and pushing myself as much as I did because I knew I was good at it. And I think for so many kids you just want to find something that you're good at and a place where you belong. And for me that was that was music. That was hanging out with my music friends and, you know, we, we weren't cool but we didn't care and we were so busy with everything that we did. So even though I grew up in Cairns, which is obviously, you know, quite regional, very far away from our next major city, which is Brisbane, two hours and a plane away, we still had a lot of amazing teachers and, and quality education and competitions in that area. So I really did hone a skill set, which obviously I I had an, an ability for and a talent for, but I did actually have access to the teachers that helped me get to a level where I am good enough to go to Sydney and study singing at the Sydney Conservatorium. And, and I was the only girl in my major stream of music voice performance in the entirety of Australia, myself and there were two guys. So wow. to be a little kid from Cairns who was good enough, and, and mind you, like, you know, my, my parents were very supportive, but they're also really realistic. They're both school teachers. Uh, I, I actually remember mum flying me down to Sydney during schoolies. There was no chance I was going to schoolies. Forget about it because when your parents <laughs> are teachers, they've heard it all before. Uh-uh. <laughs> they know what you're actually doing when you say you're going to a friend's house. So there was none of that. We flew down to Sydney and had a lesson with the head of voice at the Sydney Con and she literally sat there and was like, is she any good because we can't afford to do this if it's not even a remote chance that she's ever going to be good enough one day. And and it's a lot to take on as a child but it, it was also really important, like be realistic but also have your dreams and your aspirations and, you know, we'll get behind you and support you 100% of the way but, mm. you know, you also need to be able to afford to look after yourself in this world. So it's it's a balance between the two things I think when you you come from you know these small towns where there aren't a lot of opportunity it's it's all well and good to have these wonderful you know big dreams and, and I certainly had the biggest of dreams but I also came from a background where it was okay but you know can you support yourself and you did well in school are you really sure this is what you want to do because you can go and study medicine you can go and study law you sure you really want to sing and I was like yeah all I want to do is be on stage and be on Broadway and I was like Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, girlfriend, no worries. But, you know, it's, I think it's that growing up and being supported in pursuing my passions but having that realistic background of, of you know, my, my parents always sort of keeping it real with me as well. Like mm-hmm. my mum was never a show mum. If I got off stage and it wasn't a great performance, she'd tell me, oh, it wasn't the best. <laughs> And I go, yeah, you're right. I'm going to go practice, try harder, and come back next time. But, but I think that was really good for me, and that's what's made me quite resilient in surviving in this industry that you know you and I are both a part of. Is I've been competing and getting an adjudication on my performance since I was seven, eight years old when I did my first mm. Stepford, black and white. This is how you went. Are you any good? Are you not? So I'm kind of used to the setbacks of what happens in this industry because I'm so used to having a really honest representation on on how I'm going and where I'm at. And I do think that that's what's helped me kind of stick it out for 
I suppose, as long as I have in this world because yeah. it, it is really hard and, and being a freelancer is really hard. But, you know, if it didn't work out doing what I was doing, I would have been back home in Cairns and doing something mm. where I could afford to live. I've always had that, you know, you've got to provide for yourself. You've got to you've got to make this a real thing because there's no one there to pick up the pieces if it doesn't work out in Sydney. My parents are there for me back in Cairns for sure, but if I wanted to stay here, I needed to really dig deep and and make something of it. So I'm so proud that after I think this is my 15th year in Sydney, I'm I'm still here. She's still here. She survived. <laughs> and that yeah. I think is something that, again, like people often would meet you as a former Miss World and think, oh, she just had it, you know, had it all handed to her on a silver platter because, look, she's beautiful and she's a Sydney girl and not know that you had been through all this to actually get there. And I think what's so fascinating hearing you speak about that fine line in, you know, finding your joy or what I call seizing your yay, that as a child, a lot of us start in an artistic like a ballet or a music, but so many people let go of it at the end Mm. of high school or even the end of primary school because of that realism, because it's an incredibly competitive industry, because often your parents are worried about that, you know, need to, to build a life and be able to pay for yourself. And it's a really difficult thing. It's one thing to say, find your joy and stick with it, but then you've got to make a life out of it. And parents, let alone for the person themselves, to balance those two, like, I want my passion, but Am I good enough for it? You want to follow your dreams, but you don't want to have them crushed, you know? And, and they just want what's best for you. Yeah, they want you to be able to support yourself and to be able to function as a, as a fully fledged adult. And for me, I don't know if it was stubbornness or stupidity, but I was such a one track mind. It was, it will work. It has to work. This is all I want to do. And, and I've pivoted a little bit. I'm, I'm not performing on stage in musical theatre, but presenting and being on camera and being an MC and, uh, you know, shooting in a campaign or whatever it is you are on stage you have an audience and I've just sort of used the skills that I learned through through music and and through performing on stage and put it into this world that I'm in now so it was none of it was a waste mm-hmm. and and I still I still want to sing more I still need to get back to singing more because yeah, it's it was my first love and I absolutely adore adore it and and, and I do I do miss having it as more a part of my life but but I think doing what I've done and, and trying to grow a brand and, and a presence in this world does inevitably allow you to do more of the things that, that you love to do as well. Like mm-hmm. in any job, you start at the bottom, you work your way up and the opportunities and things that you become exposed to and, and sort of you know, uh, get you know, become allowed to do in a way, it, it grows as, as maybe, you know, you and your business grows. So yeah. I am looking for opportunities to sing more and, and it is something that does set me apart, I suppose, when clients are looking for an ambassador for that race day or, you know, that airline, Qatar Airways that I work with. It's, you know, you can offer a performance singing the national anthem, performing a set oh. during that big event, uh, singing at charity events. I love getting up and singing at Tour de Cure or Jeans for Jeans or I'm, I'm putting my hand up for everything that I can because it's such a gift and, and I wish I got to use that gift more than I do, but I'm mm. so happy that... I've had the path that I've had and and that's the way to survive in this industry too. I think it's pivoting. It's that mm. lovely P word of pivoting yeah. And, <laughs> and, yeah, and doing doing what needs to be done. So, yeah, to, I guess to survive in this world and, and you know, when you don't come from a big city and, and perhaps there isn't that backing to just keep at it no matter what for years and years and years, you you sort of end up drawing on whatever you can and and being kind of a jack of a few trades has actually served me well and allowed me Mm. to survive in this industry. 
Well, I do think you are maybe our first graduate of an actual music degree who did continue on and didn't let go of it at high school and then did go on to study. But you have, as you mentioned, been able to pivot to use that in so many different ways. You are working with incredible brands like Qatar Airways. You're working with the PSL. Like that is extraordinary. You've got such a breadth. It's not just singing, but you've you've been able to to build this brand that is so multifaceted. And I know that, you know, the Miss World Adventure and all the steps sort of around that chapter of your life have been covered a lot elsewhere. And I really want to use most of this episode for a topic that is more recent and perhaps a little bit less covered. But just to quickly get us there, for anyone else who is has a musical background perhaps or just has a specific background but wants to expand, how did you make those pivots? How did you start to position yourself so broadly to move from one thing to now using it? I mean, obviously Miss World was part of it, but not every Miss World competitor then turns out with the career that you have now. Yeah, at the time I'd finished the conservatorium, I was working a lot of promo work, like seven days a week, two or three shifts a day just to make ends meet whilst I waited for my musical theatre auditions. And I got really close to some. This is around the Phantom of the Opera hairspray time. <gasps> yeah, I got close, but not not close enough in the end. And was, you know, having those knockbacks on an even greater stage now, uh, even at one point I, my stuff got sent to America for Glinda and Wicked as an understudy. <gasps> oh I know, gosh. I know. And, and I was getting close to some and others out first round and sometimes there was never any rhyme or reason to it. Maybe they were only replacing one ensemble character. Well, you never really knew when he went in for an audition what they were looking for and I know on my CV, sure, it had graduated the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, but there was nothing else to show on that CV other than where I'd studied. And it's a very competitive industry. We have extraordinary talent in this country and not enough shows to go around. So it's really hard to break in. And I sort of thought, well, what can I get on this that is going to pique some interest and maybe get myself an agent? Because it's really hard to, to kind of get your way in there. And at the time you saw your Jacinta Campbell's, now Franklin's, your Jen Hawkins, your Rachel Finch's, all Queensland girls too, actually not, not Jen, but, you know, a lot of the girls have done well, had come through the channel of a pageant. And it wasn't that I ever was a model. I never thought that I could be a model. I never identified with being a model, but I saw the actually vastly different careers, but, you know, the careers that these women had had off the back of doing something like that. And I thought, hey, like maybe it'll help. I'll, mm. I'll give it a go because as a singer, I thought, well, I can sing for my talent, which in Miss World is basically Miss World is Miss Congeniality, the movie. It's about charity. So you've well, you got your world <laughs> yes. piece. You've got your talent section with the water glasses, except I sang. You've got your interview and you've got your fitness. So I thought, I love well. That. You've got your world piece, tick. You've got your world piece. So, and, and we, and, you know, Miss World Australia does an incredible work with the charities that they partner with. And at the time we did this amazing uh, Aboriginal at, Indigenous outreach program in, you know, Central Australia, the Lilla community, which is hours past Kings Canyon, hours past Uluru, it, literally in the middle of in the middle of nowhere. It's it's a it was an amazing initiative, and we did some amazing things. So the charity component was incredibly important, which 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 I loved. And, and again, so I sort of like try to recognize myself, like Erin, why are you doing a pageant? Like wh- what? And people would say the same thing to me. But you know, when you break it down amazing charity work that they're doing which is incredibly important there's the talent facet so I can show people that I can sing 
there's the interview. I can chat to people. I think I can be eloquent enough to get through that, sure. And then, you know, all, all of these sort of things, I thought, well, you know, I feel like I could stand out from the crowd at least because when you go into these competitions, you're surrounded by the most lovely, intelligent, beautiful women that you can never imagine in one room. <laughs> and it's so easy to like go within yourself and think, I don't belong here. What, like, what do you think you could offer that these people can't? But I think having that talent portion as something that I thought I could I could champion and at least stand out from the crowd with, that would serve me well. So in short, I competed in 2012 in Miss World. I came top 10. I had no idea what I was doing. So like with most jobs, you, you reassess, you think, okay, where can I improve? What did I learn? And I come back stronger the next year. I did Miss Universe and Miss World that year and I ended up winning Miss World. So 2013, it kind of all changed and I met my manager, who I still have to this very day, Borgs. You're <gasps> amazing. We love you. And, uh, yeah, we, we've been together for the last, I think it was eight years this year, which is really exciting. And and he took a chance on me and helped me build a brand from the bottom up, which was amazing. And and I've, you know, in turn really, we have a really great relationship where I don't think of him as my employee. I think we are business partners and we mm-hmm. both work together to to build a brand and and he's just been been wonderful for me I feel like you you always need someone in your corner and to have someone yeah, in your corner for such a long time in this world has has really helped me so the Miss Australia thing really served a purpose and gave me I feel like the leg up I needed to at least get invited to the events and get in front of the right people and then you know, like with most things in life, you can have a door opened, but whether or not you walk through it and continue to push open the subsequent doors, well, that's what hopefully helps you survive in this Absolutely. world. So, yeah, so that, that that was the idea and, and how I sort of made peace with the idea of doing a pageant, which was so completely off-brand to what I thought I was going to do, which was be a star on Broadway in musical theatre. It's just, it's very strange, but it it worked. And I'm so glad it did. And I think it's such an interesting point here that like you can go into something not necessarily thinking you're going to do it forever or that it is on brand for where you want to end up, but you can see things as a launch pad and not a waste of time, even if, you know, you don't stick with it and you don't want to be a pageant person forever. That was my law degree. I didn't necessarily want to be there forever and my law career, but I don't regret a minute of it because it it was such a stepping stone. And I think we rush to need to get to where we want to be first. And it's like, Mm -hmm. actually, there's probably like 85 steps before you get there. And not all of them are really on brand all the time. But if you go into it with this mentality that it's going to open doors. And the other thing I love about you is that, you know, it did open a lot of doors, but you didn't get pulled through them. You had to choose to walk through those and then Mm. use the next eight years to actively walk through them, work hard to continue that. You know, a lot of people kind of win those competitions and fade off into the distance, but you've been able to turn it into this incredible career. Well, one thing I want to ask in that area is you mentioned before the idea of like rejection, being given really blunt feedback from a young Mm. age, that building that thicker skin of resilience. And it's hard in an industry that is really based on what you appear to be, like your physical appearance or your physical dancing or your physical skill. It's quite confronting. And if self-doubt and imposter syndrome is common to everyone, I think it's really ramped up in this kind of industry. As you were building that brand for yourself, how has self-doubt and rejection and setbacks and imposter syndrome 
played out for you and how have you yeah. learned to manage that? And maybe not expected it ever to go away, but learn how to put it aside or cope with it. Yeah, I think it's important to to note that it never goes away. I always feel it. I am actually yes. a really emotional person. Like it and it does. Like I I still get really upset when things don't go my way, but it's not allowing it to overcome you and to derail you. It's mm. like with most things now I'm realizing accept it, feel the feels, deal with it and move on. And and I know that because it hurts me so much, I know that it means that I I really care and I really want something enough and I'm always really disappointed if I don't give it amazing performance because it's just like, you know, you know, you're better than that. And, and you know, elite you up for a day or whatever it is and then you move on. And I've also learned that, you know, to try and compartmentalise a little bit and say, okay, well, I wasn't right for that job, but it wasn't because I suck or because of how I look or because of this and that and everything else. It was probably just because of X, Y, Z and they went another way for that reason, it, it, to try not to take it so personally. And, and it's hard mm-hmm. to because when you are you as your brand, it is personal. <laughs> you, you take every setback as why Why don't you love me? What's wrong with me? What am I doing <laughs> why wrong? Why did I and, fail? And, and getting the right advice from the right people. So if it is something that you're, that you're maybe doing wrong and you can improve on, then that's constructive criticism. But if it's just they went another way because that person is qualified in that area and they want a presenter that's more you know, down the line of that rather than you or, hey, you just, this industry takes time, you got to pay your dues, great. Like there's so many reasons for why things don't work out and you know, I think the worst thing you can do is is let it eat you up and mm. destroy that self-confidence. But I would also think it's important to care and caring is what makes you want to strive to be better. So for me personally, it's it's having a thick skin over a really soft jelly coating that still feels <laughs> everything and, and hates to not be good enough. Like I'm such a perfectionist and, and a, a people pleaser. Like I just, and I, cause I've grown up being on stage and being like, love me. Where's my applause? Did I do a good job? And it, it's, where's my gold star? I know. And, and I, I was like that. I had to have straight A's. I hated mm. it if I wasn't, if I wasn't perfect. And, and there's so many parts of my personality where, you know, I wish I wasn't like that, but then I also like that for other parts because it means that I, I just won't give up. Mm. like you knock me over and I'll stay down and I'll cry for half a day and then I'll get up and I'm, I'm back, you know, better than ever. And I think it's okay. I think it's okay to, to be a people person and to want to, yeah, to, to want to impress and, and, and do the right thing and, and do a good job. I, I think there's no shame in that as well. And, and for Absolutely. me personally, anyway, that, that helps me be, be a better version of myself in this world. It's accepting the knockbacks. It's taking stuff on board, not everything on board, but you know, taking advice from the people who you trust and mm. and respect in this world as well because because no one is perfect and you know some jobs it will be Except you weren't us, the right person obviously. well you know you know <laughs> but yeah I, and, and I, I think I think that's the thing is it's this is awful advice because it changes but you know take some things personally when it's right to do so and other times just accept that it wasn't your time mm. and it's it's not a reason to give up and and to stop. There's many reasons for why things don't work out in this world. So, People listening will know this is like you almost said exactly the whole theme of this show just now, which is that self-doubt is not meant to go away. It's a great sign that you're stepping out of the comfort zone and you're invested in in doing a good job. And I too sometimes wish I wasn't like that, but then I'm like that's why I am who I am because I Mm -hmm. care enough to feel nerves and to feel a little bit of imposter syndrome, but not so much that it makes you not do the thing anyway. It's just that you need to be able to acknowledge it and push through and do it 
regardless. And, and when you're nervous, so I, I relate it to being on stage or being on camera. And a lot of the camera work that I do is live broadcast. So you don't get a chance to cut and then start again if you stuff up. Like if you forget a word on stage, mate, you better think of another one really quick. <laughs> and, and I've done that plenty of times before and as well. And it can't be fuck. <laughs> I, well, I remember once actually in a song recital in at the conservatorium, I had a set of French songs and at one point I completely forgot all of the words and I was just singing random vowels. <laughs> Literally just like whatever came into my head. And I came off stage afterwards and my singing teacher was like, look, tone was great, placement was great. Blah, 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 blah. Your French sounded like Swahili. He's, French. he's like, but I was happy overall. And I was like, okay, thank God. But you can't stop in that situation. And, and I think the point of me bringing that up was is, is learning to harness nervousness for adrenaline Yeah. in any facet, whether or not it's standing up in front of your work colleagues and speaking, if that's something that you find nerve-wracking for me, it's being on stage or being on camera. It's the nervousness shows that you care. And, and learning how to harness that adrenaline for good rather than letting it overcome you in the moment is definitely something that my career has taught me. And, and again, it's a learning curve because every time you, you do put yourself out there, it feels different. But that's what I love about this job is no two days are the same. And I could have done a great <laughs> job yesterday, but I could still get on stage or get on air and completely stuff it up in front of everybody. And, and I love that thrill. It doesn't scare me. It excites me. So I oh, think I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the right line of work for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and such a healthy attitude towards it as well. I think that's something I've, yeah, learning to harness the self-doubt rather than be crippled by it is so incredibly important. No one cares about you as you do. Remember Absolutely. that. Absolutely. No one even no one notices. as much as, as you <laughs> yeah. think they are. Remember that. <laughs> and I think the other thing as well is harnessing the perfectionism in a way that's useful rather than that detracts Absolutely. from what you're doing. And I I definitely think this is relevant to the next topic. But one question I want to ask you before we get into the meat is about your decision to turn brunette because Mm. I think that also is something that shouldn't necessarily be as big a thing as it sometimes is, but in an industry where you're presenting, you're physically on camera and in photos and stuff, was it a conscious decision? Is it something that like women in general I think sometimes in a business context feel not taken seriously if they present like in a way that they care about their appearance like I found in business as a young woman you often get underestimated was there any of that as a factor or were you just like I want to change I'm naturally brunette it's less maintenance like where did that all come from and how did it did people change towards you you're gonna laugh because it was for a job was it it was for a job so (gasps) typical Erin we'll do whatever it takes for the job it was fashion (laughs) week in 2018 and a colour company approached me and said, you want to dye your hair pink? And I went, nah, I don't know if I could make pink work, but I'll go dark because I've been blonde my entire life. So I'm naturally very, very fair as well. Like this is all every three weeks I have to get my roots done because I'm so naturally light. It's all manufactured, the, the darkness. So I went dark for a job and the response was, oh, my gosh, I love you, Dark. It brings out your eyes. You, you, I, I love this look on you. Donnie, my stylist, he's like, you're never going blonde again. You're staying dark. My hairdresser, wow. Remington, God love you, he will not turn me blonde again. He's like, no, no. I will not do it. I will not do it. This is better. And, you know, I, I guess growing up as a performer, I, I care about, you know, uh, I, again, this is a perfectionist in me. I like to, you know, be put together. I, I, I like, I feel like I've got, my shit together when I've got my face done. I, you know, mm. I, I when when I get ready for work, that was just part of 
you know, being a performer, you put your, put your stage makeup on, you get, get your face ready and you, and you get out into the world. And I guess for that reason, I kind of don't, I'm not really attached to my look as such, like, you know, long, short hair. Like I don't care. I could walk into the hairdresser tomorrow and he'll cut it all off and it, it won't bother me. I don't really have a connection to, I suppose, what, you know, the color of my hair or the length of my hair or what I'm wearing or whatever it is. I, I sort of, I trust the people who know what they're doing. And I think that's been right. really useful for me in this world is, you know, I have a manager and a publicist because that's what he's good at. It's not what I'm good at. I have an amazing stylist, Donnie Galella, who tells me what to wear all the time. He is incredible. <laughs> and I listen, I listen to him because he knows what he's talking about. And, and right. same thing with my hairdresser. I'm like, right. Like, you know, I, I love surrounding myself with people who know what they're talking about and I, I know how to present and I know how to sing and I know how to do a good job and I, I think staying in my lane and then letting other people who have their lane I suppose um, influence my life is mm. has been really helpful for me because I'm a really indecisive person so because <laughs> I, I second guess myself so much and, <laughs> yeah. and, and I think yeah I, I, I went dark and I stayed dark because you know, the, the response was great and, and I ended up working in Asia a lot more as a result. I think being blonde wow. is just too unattainable. Like I think being blonde and working in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and Nepal and the places that I have worked, blonde hair is amazing but it's not relatable whereas yeah. being white but having dark hair in an Asian country, you're still, I think you're still that little bit more relatable than if I was white with blonde hair mm. in, and working on their TV channels and, and, and absorbing in their culture. And, and I do think that it's worked better for working in some of the countries that, that I've worked in. And, and I, I love absorbing myself in the culture. And, you know, when I work in India and Pakistan and these places, I love wearing the local clothes. I love eating the local food. I love, like, I, I want to absorb the world around me and and I think being the bright pageant blonde hair that I was without even really giving it too much thought I've just I've slid into life as as a brunette which is yeah sort of worked for these these industries that, that I work in and, and these countries that I work in a little bit more I don't uh, sometimes my clients have told me that's the case as well yeah like mm. I think blonde would have just been a little bit too different you know, we want people to warm to you, and and I think, yeah, working in some of the places that I've worked, it's been, yeah, it's been, it's been a good That's thing. So fascinating, and I love watching you doing presenting work in traditional local dress and and doing dances with your fellow hosts. It's just, it's amazing to see. I think that's something amazing. There's so much I want to talk to you about. Oh my god, like I know that, we, we could we could do this for, I could talk for hours. Sorry, that was really long winded. All of that stuff. I don't know if that's that's relevant, but yeah, I think. I think um, in terms of dyeing my hair, it was for a job and it's just stayed that way because I've enjoyed playing another character for a while, being a brunette. I and, love it. And as a performer, yeah, you sort of used to putting on putting on a face for work or a wig for work or whatever it is and <laughs> I'm just brunette Erin for now and, and I'm loving that. I Maybe I'll go red one day. I'll probably go back blonde because the maintenance is <gasps> way too much. Every three weeks I'm getting my roots done. I'm sorry. Whoa, you're like the opposite of most people. It's so interesting. It's <laughs> you're like a packet and... brunette. I didn't even know that I was am. a word. I am. I'm so, I'm so naturally fair. It's crazy. But, yeah, it's, I, I, you know, I again, I'm a sucker for feedback. People like the brunette hair and I think people know more than me about most things. So I'm like, all right, we're going to be brunette for now. <laughs> 
Lovely neighborhood. It isn't news to anyone that episode 102 with Dr. Richard Harris is possibly my personal favorite episode of all time. One of my ultimate messages here is that it doesn't matter how unusual or unique your personal combination of yay is, someone out there is looking for exactly that. And nobody could ever have known that an anesthetist cave diver was the key to one of the hardest rescue missions of our time. They say you remember exactly where you were the moment you heard about a disaster like 13 young boys getting stuck in a cave almost impossible to reach for 18 days. It may just be me, but I feel like the details of just how impossible the rescue was went over my head at the time and I never really grasped that they may not survive. So what I do remember was the moment two years later when I realised the dive just to reach them was so hard it took the life of a Navy SEAL and could take 11 hours return, that it was through coffee-coloured water in tunnels so narrow it touched both their chest and back at the same time, that the boys had to be sedated to prevent panic in the multi-hour dive and restrained to stop their limbs getting cut off by jagged rocks, and that even the divers themselves weren't sure they'd come out the other end until hours later when they did. These and so many other details of this impossible feat still give me goosebumps. It's one of my favourite stories to hear over and over again. And now you can watch the mission unravel in the incredible new film based on the true story, 13 Lives on Prime Video. Directed by Ron Howard and starring the likes of Joel Edgerton and Colin Farrell, you'll get goosebumps, spine tingles, tears of despair and tears of hope. It is streaming from August 5th, so it's out now. Do not miss out. Oh my gosh, you have such a fascinating story. I would love to talk more about working in Pakistan and India and long distance. I feel like we need to do multi parts to this episode, but like, whoa. <laughs> but I think while I've got you for this, this first episode, I think one thing that has been quite recent for you that is current for me as well, that is still not openly spoken about enough, but that you have been incredibly, incredibly honest and raw about in a way that I think has given so many people comfort, education. Like I just still can't believe how little I know about my own body. So I would love to get into this this section now while I have you. And, and that's to just talk about the fertility journey, which is something that as perfectionists, you sort of say like, this is my timeline, my body will fit into how I want this to work. And unfortunately and rudely, that is not how nature actually operates. So <laughs> can you tell us as much as you are comfortable with how it has unraveled for you, how you started the process, what your timeline originally was? The biggest question I've had is what tests you actually did and then, you know, what, what the journey has been like. Yeah, I mean, mine's only really just beginning and I could still talk to you for another hour about how it's all sort of panned out for me so far. But I did SAS Australia last year and as part of the show, you do a lot of medicals. You do psychological assessments, you do physical assessments and around the time of getting these tests done in order to be allowed on the show, I was talking to my friends. A lot of my friends now are starting to have children and of various degrees of success, obviously now as as I'm learning more and more, there is no straight line to a successful pregnancy and a successful <laughs> birth. There is there is so much that can happen and and so much that it takes for it to even to even get pregnant. But being around so many of my friends going through it, 
so many had said because because I'm I'm very career focused. I'm very career orientated. I still think I'm 25 in the head. I'm obviously not. I'm 33 years old now. But in my brain, I sort of I wasn't really there yet. My husband, on the other hand, is so clucky. He's like, give me, give me, give me babies. <laughs> but, but for me, I just wasn't really there yet. We have a long distance relationship as well. He's based in Brisbane and overseas. I'm in Sydney. A lot of factors for why the time wasn't right right now. But mm. I came off the pill after doing SAS back in May last year. And before I got on the show and was doing my medicals, I did a simple AMH test. My friends had said, just get the blood test. Like it's really easy. And my doctor at the time kind of fought me on it and said, yeah, but it doesn't mean anything. And I don't want you to freak out because it might come back a certain way because quantity does not equal quality, which is something that became very apparent for me later on down the track. Don't read too much into it. I'll do it if you want, but okay. It's like, all right, fine. Well, it's 80 bucks. I'll do it anyway. I did the test and my test came back at the very low end of normal or high end of poor, as Ben likes to tell me. So he's like, <laughs> you need to get on this ASAP. It's the high end of poor. I'm like, it's the low end of normal. Yeah. Mr. Glass, yep. half empty. But I went, okay. And, and the information wasn't surprising to me. I've been on the pill since I was 16 years old. Not great at the whole one per day thing. Absolute scatterbrain. Never, ever had a remote whoopsie or a late period or because I, I never had a period I was on the pill for such a long time and I've been anemic off and on when I was a bit younger so my doctor also said don't even worry about having the withdrawal bleed just keep going on the on the active pills because it's not an actual period anyway you didn't ovulate okay cool so I did that for 16 years I finally came off the pill after SAS because I thought well you know we're married now if it happens it happens let's you know Let's just sort of see. I've been on the pill for a really long time and so many of my friends had also said it might take a long time for you to get your cycle back, which is something Mm. that everyone kind of says as well. So I came off the pill and I just didn't get a period for months and I went, "Uh, okay. And everyone goes, oh, you know, just give it a bit longer. It can take time. Oh, it took me a year. Oh, it took me two years. You know, all the things that you hear from other friends and, and family when you chat to them about it. And and one thing about me too, which I think has served me really well and why I decided to speak about this is I am a really open person and I came from a family that weren't necessarily super open with their emotions and, and what they were feeling. But for me, being open and being very vocal has helped me cope. Mm. And, and I'm also someone who, if you look me in the eyes and say, are you okay?, I can't lie. So when I started going through everything that I'm about to touch on, for me it actually was it's it's cathartic and it's therapeutic for me as well as the fact that it seems to be for other people. So so sharing is as much for me as it is for for everyone else and, and it does it does really help me. But so I I didn't get my period back. It got to November of last year and Ben, my husband, again, he's like, right, okay, low end of poor. We need to like go and place some embryos. Like, and I'm like, babe, 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 like, I, no, I, I don't think I'm there yet. Like, this is this with work. He goes, oh, no, 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 but like, if we don't have a lot of eggs, like, we got to, we got to put them in the freezer. We got to put them in the ice tray. Like, let's get yeah. it ready to go. Like, he's I'll make so, some room. I'll move some yeah, of my frozen like, vegetables. <laughs> literally, he's he's so on it. And he asked around all of our friends uh, up in Brisbane. He found a doctor who came very highly recommended. He booked us in to go and have a <gasps> consult. He did everything. Wow. I'm there sitting there going, I'll get around to it. It's fine. No, so he's very proactive is, is my darling husband. And we go in to see this fertility doctor together. I'm like, hey, X, Y, Z, 
I have a low AMH. It was a 6.4 on this first reading, which is a low end of normal number, as I mentioned before. And basically, as we know, we start with a certain amount of eggs when we're born. Or maybe we don't know. That's something that I'm learning is yeah. people's information on this is, is vast like, and varied. Don't assume. Most people don't That's know true. anything about their body. <laughs> We're born with a certain number of eggs and that decreases until we hit menopause. So on the scale, I was very much down towards the bottom. And so he's talking to us. The doctor's talking to us. He's like, great, like we'll just do some tests. We'll do some genetic tests. We'll see, you know, there's, there's many, many things that, that, you know, come into play when it comes to fertility let's just do all the blood tests and oh let's do a pelvic ultrasound as well because we'll just check that you know you've got all the right tubes and ovaries and what your uterus looks like yada yada so it does the internal so fun just for everyone listening if you have listened to the episode a couple of weeks ago you will know that this is the exact stage that I am at right now so the AMH test is the blood test that measures how many eggs you have mm-hmm. and then if you get but a certain not result the quality remember not that. the quality just the quantity <laughs> and then the pelvic ultrasound is kind of what completes that picture so where mm-hmm. parallels happening at this yeah. point so he gets up in there they're so fun oh so fun love, love an internal ultrasound and he goes oh like, oh it's not a good sign what he goes well you've got a lot of eggs. And I was like, huh? I thought I had no eggs. And he goes, yeah, look. And he, you know, moves the lovely contraption over to one side <laughs> and it looks like honeycomb. And Did you like, see all the little circles? All the little circles. He goes, <gasps> this honeycomb, they're all follicles. And I went, okay. And he goes, we'll go to the other side. So rip away to the other side. He goes, and that side has even more. And I was like, what? He goes, you've got 35 plus. The average woman has around six to 10, apparently, during a cycle. I had 35. He's like, this doesn't make sense to me based on your AMH, which was very low. Let's repeat the test plus another whole bunch of tests, which were tested for genetic disorders and other fun things. We'll test Ben. We'll test Ben's sperm. We'll see what he's like and we'll reconvene. So they've done these tests. They did a blood test. They did a sperm test. They did the AMH again on me and... Of course, I ended up going overseas for work. So when we got these results, I was on, it wasn't even a Zoom call because they're banned in the UAE, but it was, yeah, no video calls in the UAE. <gasps> but I, I spent hundreds of dollars calling Australia to get the results of, of these tests and it came back that I actually had an incredibly high AMH of 34.4, I think it was at the time, completely other end of the spectrum and I actually had something called PCO. It's not PCOS, which is uh, the polycystic ovarian syndrome. I just have polycystic ovaries or multicystic ovaries as it's called. And basically I have so many eggs during my cycle that my brain never ever gets the cue to ovulate. And if you don't ovulate, then you don't have an egg released from your ovary. And the space that that egg has left is what usually cues the brain to cue the uterus to shed its lining and have a period. So I just didn't ovulate ever. And he said, look, it's really hard to tell. I can't see any evidence of you having had a cycle with the number of eggs you have. You might only have a period once or twice a year. For someone like you, I would suggest IVF because I can make you ovulate, but it's a lot of drugs and it's very hard on your body to only have a small percentage of a chance each cycle that a woman has when she is trying to fall pregnant, which as I've learned is very low (laughs) anyway, or 
if you're going to put yourself through your body through that amount of hormones, you've got a much better success rate of IVF. I think that is what is going to have to happen for you. And I remember just completely breaking down overseas. Like I put the phone on mute and I just kind of bawled my eyes out. And it shocked me because as someone who wasn't wanting to get pregnant tomorrow or really even getting their head around it was just going, yep, okay, great, let's, you know, bank some things in the freezer ready to go for when the time is right. It shocked me at the sense of devastation I felt at the lack of this ever being a normal process. Mm -hmm. Like all of a sudden I was thinking, wow, I'm never going to get excited and do a pregnancy test and, and you know, oh, surprise, we're pregnant. Like I'm, I'm, it's always going to be clinical and organised and very, very, very expensive and very hard on my body and, and it's just it's the loss of any normality around the process really hit mm. me really hard. And then it turned out that I had another couple of issues as well. I carry a couple of genetic little nasties, which are not the end of the world. Like some of them can be treated with folic acid. Uh, there's a you know there's a few things that can be done, but luckily Ben was all good to go and great. So very thankful that it's only one of us that has uh, infertility issues. I can't imagine for couples who have both sides have issues. It becomes obviously incredibly difficult to conceive the more issues you have to contend with but I felt shit I felt broken I felt as a perfectionist like when your body Mm. fails you like physically fails you it's so personal like wow like the one thing you're supposed to be able to do and and don't get me wrong like I don't think women were put on this earth to breed like we are so much more than the fact that we reproduce but that primal feeling of like yeah, you, you can't even do this. Like, really? Like, what do you mean you can't do this? It was a lot. And and I think the, the confusion of not feeling like I was even close to being ready but then being so upset and so devastated about it was really hard to get my head around and and sit in those feelings and not even understand why I was feeling the way I was feeling. And then I don't know about you, but I went down that path of like, is this the universe saying that you're not meant to be a mother? Like, you know is this even your path but then you know the rational side of my brain would kick in and I go no like I know so many amazing women in my life who've had infertility issues and they are the best mothers in the world they they were meant to be mothers but when it's yourself you just can't get that perspective it's yeah it's it's just it's a lot and I think that's been my tagline the entire way through is like this whole process is is a lot to get your head around and and from there you know we've we've now done two rounds of egg collection and embryos first round ended up in nothing and that really hit me for six again like I I felt like putting my body through all of that the huge exorbitant cost of it and and even even with a medicare rebate which I'm lucky enough to be you know be have access to being in Australia and and having someone who who has issues I can get around half back on medicare it's still you know, around six, $7,000 around after the rebate for the first one to end up in absolutely nothing. That truly felt like my safety net had broken and yeah. and I didn't know what to do because, you know, you go, okay, well, you know, I'm not ready yet, but I'm going to put these little bad boys away and then when I'm ready, I'm going to get my head around that. And then when there was nothing to put away and to go through injections twice a day and like I found the hormone swings really difficult 
I know Ben has found the hormones really difficult, <laughs> but I do not care because that's <laughs> yeah. all you have to deal with, mate. <laughs> the skin, like I've always been very lucky to have good skin and my skin has just said, fuck you. <laughs> it's just been a lot. And for yeah. the first round to, you know, result in absolutely nothing because, again, there's no guarantees. Even with embryos, there's no guarantees that the embryos will take. And, and then I'm sort of not even at the stage where I'll be dealing with transfers and the thing that they call the two-week wait, which is after the transfer you have that two weeks to see if it's actually taken and if you are pregnant. And then there's obviously still a chance of miscarrying at any point in your pregnancy. But IVF pregnancies, for whatever reason, are an even higher chance of miscarrying. So there's to look at the journey and it to have already felt like so much and to be like, wow, but you're still down here and there's mm. all of this to go has has been a lot. So I'm about to start my third round of egg collection. Uh, my second round was a lot more successful. I ended up with three embryos, which was great. But And mind you, that's from 22 follicles. So you wow. go in with 22 follicles thinking that you're going to have 22 little chances and and it becomes like the hunger games like anyone who's gone through <laughs> IVF literally oh it's like the egg hunger games and you start off with like a big number hopefully if you're lucky some women go through all of this stim cycle and only end up with a few but you have your number and then each day it just they call you up and they go oh there's this many left and, and then there's this many left of this grade and then there's a few of this grade and then you know all of a sudden you're left with zero like my first round or or three, which is actually considered pretty successful, three out of 19, really? They're pretty shitty odds. Yeah. I <laughs> mean, for a, a typically A-plus student, that's a yeah, hard percentage um, to get your head around. It's better than zero, but uh, it's, yeah. just, it, it's just it's, it's a lot. And then yeah. they get frozen. And, and because of the way that my body works, it, they've already sort of said to me that a fresh transfer, which is where – after you do your cycle, as it suggests, rather than freeze them, they'll do a fresh, a fresh transfer to hopefully you know get you pregnant. Probably isn't going to be how it's going to work for me anyway because I don't really have a lining. I don't have the right hormone levels. I'll have right. to go on progesterone, vaginal suppositories, and all sorts oh, of fun things. The joys, the joys. You could write uh, a musical about this. You should literally oh, make an IVF musical. <laughs> it would be R-rated because there would be a yeah. lot of swearing. <laughs> and so much vagina talk. I mean, <gasps> wow. Poor man, there'd be a whole monologue of fuck you. This is, yeah. I hate you. <laughs> like, no, it's um, it's a lot. And, and the one thing I would say as well is, you know, everyone's journey is completely different and, I never would want to give anyone advice on anything because the way that your body responds and what it responds to and how it works is so completely different. And and there's so much that we still don't know about mm. fertility and about our bodies. And now I've got friends who have successfully had many children who I'm teaching them how they got pregnant because yeah. they don't know. <laughs> they like never had to know that. They never had to know. Like I, even me, I go, wow, okay, so if we got pregnant naturally, the sperm actually swims up the fallopian tube and meets the egg and then it descends into the uterus and then it implants on the side. Like I thought they met in the middle and had a great time. No, they <laughs> party. don't. A party. And with IVF, unless you do something called ICSI, which is an extra charge again, they literally throw the egg and the sperm in a dish and go, happy days. Good luck, Bizarre. guys. Unless you pay extra, which Ben and I did, to actually get a hand-picked 
sperm of fantastic quality and insert one into each follicle for the best chance of fertilization. But again, that's an extra cost. So, and then genetic testing is an extra cost. So, you know, with us just recently, we had four embryos that made it to day five, day six blastocysts, which is what you call an embryo that successfully made it to that stage. One of them was chromosomally defunct. So that's not oh. one that we can use. So it's, it's just it's such a roller coaster, and there's so many steps that go into it, and I'm just blown away by science, and so grateful yeah. that I even have an opportunity to because my great auntie I found out also had polycystic ovaries and was never able to have children because she's 90, and this wasn't wow. available to her back then. So incredibly grateful that it's even a chance for someone like me. But getting your head around the process and and, and how much of a physical and a mental battle even this stage of IVF has been has been a real a real shock and and I think sharing the experience online as I mentioned a little earlier in the app has been incredibly cathartic for me and and as someone who really does sort of wear their heart on their sleeve and is quite an emotional person it does help me to be honest and yeah. and to sort of share how I'm feeling and the number of women that have reached out to me since and people that you and I know in this industry as well who I had no idea had gone through this. It's it's so much more common than you think and there's so many of us who are going through this. I just hope those of us who are comfortable and willing to share do it because it, it is helping people to see other people going through the same thing and, and I would never push anyone to share anything that they're not comfortable sharing but luckily for, for me I guess it, it is something that I'm able and, and willing to share. So I know for me personally, when I started going through this in November last year, all I wanted was to find other people to relate to and to listen yeah. to and and maybe who hadn't necessarily finished their journey, whether or not it was positive or negative, but to find people to go along with it in real time was really nice. So that's kind of why I decided to to put it out there and share and, you know, see if anyone it would help anybody else because it was certainly helping me. I mean, it's it's helped me so much personally being like that little bit behind you in time, even to know what these tests are called. Like I had never heard of an AMH test before. I had never understood that polycystic ovaries and polycystic ovary syndrome were different. So when mm. I did the same, I had the AMH result being very high and thinking, oh, I'm super fertile. And then <laughs> in the pelvic ultrasound being like, you've got a lot, but I think it's polycystic. And then thinking it was PCOS and being like, oh, my God. and Because then you Google that and, and to all of our gals out there who have horrible. PCOS, I, I really sympathise because I, I can't imagine having the issues that just say you and I have, but then having the actual cysts and all the fun that. things that come with the syndrome, it's, it's you know, it's a really, really difficult um, you know, thing to have, mm. or you know, the girls that have endometriosis—that's incredibly painful. And there's mm. an extra surgery often of scraping away the endo before you can even get to doing, you know, the part that I'm doing at the moment. So it's a really broad thing, infertility, and there's so many things that can, you know, go, go into having being diagnosed with having infertility. Like there's, it's just such a broad spectrum of of things. And um, yeah, I just. It's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I often don't really know how I feel and each day can be completely different. Some days yeah. I'm really up and I'm positive. Other days I'm just like, fuck this. Like I just, you know, sitting in a car injecting yourself before you go into work that day or in a public toilet or in an airport toilet or, you know, it's bruising as well and bloating because when you've got PCO like I do and, and you do, Sarah, when you 
go through IVF and essentially you're pumping yourself full of hormones to blow up these follicles all at the same time for them to be harvested. Great word, harvested. <laughs> they, they, they usually call it egg collection these days, but it was an egg harvest back in the day for them yeah. to be taken out. <laughs> if you've got 22 follicles that all grow to be over 20 millimetres each, you've got ovaries the size of grapefruits sitting Gosh. inside of you. So, you know, if you think of the size of a really nice juicy grapefruit, having that kind of packing that heat for two weeks inside is <laughs> is actually really uncomfortable. So, oh, yeah, so it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I think the more you, the more people like you are open and, and I had a similar thing of like, I don't want to announce this because then the pressure that it puts on you to to do it quickly because suddenly everyone knows that the temptation is to keep it so secret and to keep it behind closed doors. But for similar reasons, I thought like Nick and I have this added element of I'm adopted and his mum was adopted. So we don't even have like medical background to look at. My mum went through IVF in Monash, IVF's first ever round of IVF. And even I didn't know what IVF involved because I've just never asked her. Like there's so little information out there and and even hearing you explain sort of that it involves injecting yourself. I think people don't even know that. People don't even know it's an option and or how you would even get there. And I think you have been so incredibly brave in sharing that journey in real time because it is so different to hearing once you have a child going back and going, oh, it was really hard at the time, hearing how you're feeling when it fails, how that does mess with your mind and something that resonated so much. And I think a lot of women in their 30s in this generation will be will be really feeling the the sort of feels about is you saying it's one thing to desperately want this to work and to feel like a failure when it doesn't but it's even more when you don't actually even you're not desperately wanting the child tomorrow like we've had COVID so we've come out of this three years three years biologically older but three years less of experience in life like we haven't been able to do anything you feel like you've been robbed of that time yes and I think the most frustrating thing as well is what it means to be a woman has changed so much and it's like biology hasn't caught up with our progression in society and these years where we are killing it in our careers and we've been working our way up to this point is that's the time that you're really at the last legs of of fertility for many ways and you kind of feel like I don't want to choose why do I have to choose between the two why can't I have both but but realistically there will be a step that is taken back when you fall pregnant and when you first have a child, at least for a little while. It's inevitable and it's so frustrating when you're like, why, body? Like, why do you want to have kids when you're a teenager or 20? Yeah. Like, why <laughs> can't you do it when then. you're 40? Like, I just, it's just so frustrating that, you know, we've had this amazing evolution of, yeah, of, of what, what it means to, to be a woman in this day and age, but our bodies have a caught up with the program like you know why why hasn't that elongated as well like it's 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 very frustrating and you know I I know future Erin definitely doesn't want to miss out on this part of life just current Erin getting her head around how it fits in and how it works and when you when you're married to an athlete who spends six months plus of the year overseas I don't want to do it on my own I don't but I don't want my body to you know not allow me to do it when I'm ready and and do, will I ever feel ready because I don't yeah. think many women do and yeah. and for someone like me it's a real shame that it couldn't have happened naturally because then the decision might have been taken out of my hands and I wouldn't have obsessed over the timing so much it's yeah you know it's happened and it was meant to be this way and great but for me it's always going to be clinical and calculated and 
and I'm sad that it won't be as much of a, a sh- you know, a surprise and a joy. It's going to be a relief or a disappointment. Yeah. I, I wish I wish it could be. I do still agree with the fact that it will ever be quote unquote normal. But the yeah. more I learn, the more I realize that no one ever really has a normal, a normal journey anyway. So <laughs> it, it is what it is. And, and you know, uh, for however I'm feeling, whatever I'm going through, there's definitely plenty of other women going through the same thing. And, mm. you know, we're a little underground army, as I say, and there's so <sighs> many of us, so many of us who go through it. So, you know, to everyone who's reached out to me, thank you. And have shared some really, really personal stories with me like I I read everything I respond to everything and and I so appreciate it and you know I'm rooting for everyone whatever mm. whatever your journey is with this whatever you choose like I yeah really hope it works out for them oh Erin that's just so beautiful there are, I know you don't want to sort of give anyone advice because the journeys are so different but perhaps a couple of questions that might be sort of instructive just anecdotally one of the questions I got asked was how do you be really happy for friends who do fall pregnant naturally or who do seem to have a bit of an easier journey and those at our age the announcements are all the time how do you celebrate like sort of detach your experience from happiness for them but grieving is the word you used I think it is grieving for the loss of that natural surprise journey how do you still celebrate for people you love see because I'm at a stage where I'm not trying to get I'm not going through transfers at the moment I think that this may change later on down the track at the moment it's I feel something when people tell me their amazing news I'm not really sure how to put it into words I'm still so excited and so over the moon for my friends. And I think I will always be that way. But but that little pang in the heart is, it might be getting ever so slightly stronger, but it's not really at that point because I haven't gone through transfers and, and failed transfers yet, like unfortunately so many women do when they get to that point. Because I'm not there yet, I think I'm still quite okay with, with that mm. part of it. And I'm a really empathetic person and I think I will always be just so excited for anybody who's excited about something that they're telling yeah. me and you know how how great like I would never want and it's already happening with some friends who have felt scared to tell me and I'm like no look, I am so happy for you like I don't want this for anybody I'm so glad that you know it's it's worked out this way for you and it may not always be that way I might wake up tomorrow and feel differently but at this point it's you know I, I guess because I'm not actually at that that live transfer you know, two week wait, time after time, period. Mm. Yet, uh, I'm not kind of feeling feeling those feelings. So I'm I'm still I'm very very happy and very very thankful that you know people in my life are not having to go through this because I wouldn't wish it on anybody. It's mm. so much harder physically and mentally than I ever would have thought possible. And and as I keep reiterating, I am still very much at the beginning of this journey and and very aware. I think because I like to educate myself too on the possibilities and, and, you know, what my body will be put through in the future is it may be very hard and it may also take time for any of these embryos that we managed to get to take. So I think I'm, I'm trying to keep it real because on one hand I've got my husband who, bless him, he was glass half empty when it came to my egg count, but he's glass half full with everything else. He's like, yay, we've got three babies with beanies on and a test tube. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> With a cricket bat in their hand. <laughs> we, and I, I said, I was like, well, God help them if they're not athletic. But, <laughs> you know, I, I need to manage his expectations a little bit. And I think that's something that 
you know, women who are going through this with male partners will probably struggle with because there's just so much they don't understand about women and yeah. what we go through anyway and mm-hmm. and managing his expectations on how this is all going to work. Like, you know, when we first found out we had IVF, he's like, that's okay. It means we can plan when. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is just, <laughs> this is a chance yeah. to get pregnant. This is not a guaranteed thing. And I, I don't want to be pessimistic, but I also want to be realistic yeah. and, and, I think it's good that he is positive because if he was negative like I can be about it, it would be so so destroying. <laughs> but yeah, it's managing your partner's expectations too as well, which I found mm. really difficult. And me just leaving random podcast episodes for him to listen <laughs> hey, to honey. and things. And just oh, I just think you should listen to this. Or, you know, from a male's perspective of, of what it is to go through. And and another thing as well is the number of men that have reached out with male factor wow. infertility has been really eye-opening and that's fascinating. And the sense of guilt that sometimes they say they feel because the woman still has to go through IVF even if she has no issues if there's male factor infertility. That's just the way it works. So there's almost another layer of their part is so small in so many ways of physically and, and emotionally what, what they go through. But it's so emotional still as well because, you you know, it's your partner and it's, mm. it's your child. And, yeah, I th- that was really interesting as well to, to hear them sort of speak out and, and talk to me about how they were feeling and, and watching their partner go through that when they go, well, it's because of me. And well, you know what? It's it's you guys together, and this is your journey. And just you know, be there for one another. I think that's just so important. Just yeah. Yeah, try and support each other as much as you can through it because it's not easy for anyone. And I know I'm guilty yeah. of forgetting how Ben feels sometimes because I'm like, you don't know. <laughs> you don't Say know. no words. Yeah. <laughs> and he'll be like, what errand am I getting today? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there are many he's errands. Like, Answer my question. <laughs> um, but, yeah, he's, luckily for me, he's a very calm, very level-headed person and I'm the emotional, crazy performer <laughs> anyway in the relationship, let alone when I'm stimmed to the eyeballs full of God knows what. Oh, so, my yeah. love. <laughs> Well, so you've done egg collection and and then there's obviously, you know, procedurally different phases of IVF and what you'll be going through. So what is next? What are the next steps? And even if you don't want to give anyone else advice, maybe what would you give future Erin as advice for for navigating the next chapters? So next steps for me, I've got three embryos on ice, but in an ideal world, should we get to choose, Ben and I would like two children. So the chances of a transfer taking for someone of my age is around 30%. So probability maths tells me I need at least seven embryos. So I need to keep going with my egg collections until I manage to get at least seven embryos is what my doctor has advised me. So I'm about to undertake my third round. I'm going to see the doctor in a couple of days and because I don't get a cycle, they put me on the pill and then take me off it each time to create some sort of a, yeah, there's a lot of hormones, oh, a lot of hormones honey. going on. So. How are you doing life? Oh, yeah, they're getting there. They're <laughs> Am getting I doing there. life? Am I? Or? I don't know. I, I, yeah, so I, I get put on the pill and then taken off each time as well. So it takes me a little longer between cycles because I don't have one. Um, <laughs> Which is great. So I'm on the pill again at the moment. I'll go and see the doctor. He'll do another internal ultrasound. He'll check that I've healed up okay from the last egg collection. Having a lot of follicles also means a lot of needles. So in IVF, basically, a needle is inserted into each follicle and the follicle's drained. And hopefully within that, there's an egg. Sometimes there isn't, but 
because it's 22 usually for me needles each time they just need to make sure that everything's healing up okay yeah so I'll go back and see the doctor and then Ben and I have kind of got an idea in mind next year as to when we'd like to start trying to transfer in a perfect world I'll see how I feel I'm, I'm trying not to put any pressure on myself in terms of that and I'll be guided by my doctor as to when the time is right for me physically as well mm-hmm. they, they also suggest seeing a counsellor when you go through IVF it's not something that I've done personally yet um, but I think it's really I think it's really important particularly if you're not someone who likes to talk to everyone around them about what they're going through I would absolutely recommend you know getting those feelings and those thoughts out with a professional and then in terms of what I would say to future Erin is you know, Eve, I think knowledge is power. And if it's as simple as getting an AMH test just as a starting point, going and chatting to a fertility doctor, if children is something that you think you might like in the future, even if it's not now, I think knowledge is power. And, you know, if I'd known I had PCO years ago, it maybe it wouldn't made a difference as to when I started this. I don't know. I can't go back in time. But I think uh, fertility is one thing that's sticking your head in the sand and hoping everything works out for the best doesn't kind of really work that way so uh, yeah I would say I would say sooner rather than later if children is something that you see in your future just ask the questions just book an appointment ask the questions find out your own personal situation you know the blood tests that Ben and I did in terms of uh, finding out about our genetic situations you know Ben and his side of things it's just it's good information to have and then once you've got the information you can figure out what it is that you want to do together and for my friends out there who are you know single and haven't found a person yet that they want to settle down with I'd say yeah even a conversation of you know where do I sit in that range of eggs and how many I have how much you know how much time do I have in a perfect world I think it's just it's just good information to have for you and if it is on the lower side and you want to freeze eggs as a as a safety net great, do it. I don't think you'll ever regret that decision later on down the track. So yeah, I think knowledge is power and just biting the bullet and going and asking the right questions, I think, yeah, is is great. And, you know, knowing what I know now, I wish I had 27-year-old eggs, (laughs) but I don't. I have 33-year-old eggs. We're just going to have to come to terms with that. So yeah, I, I think, I think, that's probably the number one advice that I would say is I know it's really scary and the answers that maybe we don't write, we don't feel like we're ready for right now, but you can't avoid mortality yeah, Yeah. and and biology. So I think that's what I would say. I admire you so much and I'm so grateful that you've shared so openly today. I feel like many, many listeners will be really, really either reassured or feel heard or understand a little bit more about what they perhaps could be doing now. There's just so many parts to this story and I've already kept you for so long, but I'm I'm so grateful. I have so much, so much love and admiration for you. I do have one last question. There's usually a lot of finishes, but I think this one's just probably the most relevant given that so much of your day and year is taken up with something that is so challenging and so emotionally consuming that there has to be some way for you to still find little moments of joy and to be able to to still see the light even on days where there is so much darkness. And I think that's something overall that anyone going through anything needs to, to be able to do for themselves. So 
how do you amongst all of this still find the yay? What are the small things in life that that remind you to smile even on those really hard days? Yeah, I'm a people person and surrounding myself with the people that I love, like that's what pulls me out of any funk. Like I I live alone when I'm in Sydney and so when I'm away from Ben it gets a little bit harder but you know it's catching up with friends it's going for a coastal walk here in Coogee it's it's physically getting myself out of my funk whether it's to get up and go and see a friend or to get outside and and go to the beach and feel the fresh air and just yeah I think I think it's it's physically removing myself from the rut that I'm in because Mm. I you know like anybody we can get get so down and so overwhelmed and you know, overrun by life. And, and this has been a big, a big one for us, you know, this, this year, really, when we've been going through this, but it's, it's, you know, spending time with the people that you love and it's physically getting out and, you know, breathing in that beautiful, fresh air and, and just reminding yourself that um, life is, is incredible. And it's, it's got its ups and its downs. And this is just one of the you know, things sent to to challenge me and mine, but you know, we mm. we roll on and, and we get through it. And and I think sharing for me has also been really important for my mental health. So thank you to everyone who has reached out and and conversed with me about this because it's yeah, it's it's a lot. And yeah, it's okay to sit in those feelings too, as much as we try to to move through them and run away from them. I think mm. I think sitting in them is and processing is just as important. So yeah, and chocolate, love chocolate. <laughs> Feed me chocolate. When, I, when I'm on these cycles, I can't, I, you know, I'm, I'm not drinking or anything like that as well. So I'm like, chocolate it is, baby. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite quotes is, "You were assigned this mountain to show others can be moved." It was sent your way because you're strong enough to deal with it. Do you have any favourite quotes to leave us with? Oh, gosh, that's a, he's thrown that on me. Ooh, that's a big question. Well, I, I know, favourite quotes. I should have sent it to you before it's the finisher. I know, I know. I'm just trying to think. I actually have like a little note. I actually do have one and very fittingly it came from a music talent show but it came from America's Got Talent and there was a singer called Nightbird and she said, you can't wait until life isn't hard anymore before you decide to be happy. Oh, and it such always, a good one. Oh, Erin. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, and I just think it's, yeah. And, 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 you know, for her personally, her story was absolutely incredible and, and she, she isn't with us anymore, this particular performer, because she, she had cancer, but it, um, it resonated with me so much and, yeah, I think that's, um, you know, whatever it is, everyone's life is has a different path and a different journey and what is hard, in inverted commas, for me is going to be very different to what's hard for someone but it's all relative and it's all hard and, yeah, I, I think there's um, in any situation there's always light at the end of the tunnel. That is the most beautiful way to finish. I did so well. Finish. I got through the whole thing without crying. I was actually going to say you made it so far and then I ruined it all. It's fine. It's fine. No, we did oh. well. It's a lot. That's the tagline. It's and a lot. I know, I know. I should put that underneath. It's like a little caption. Erin, yeah. thank you so much. You are just an incredible, incredible human being and I am so, so grateful for you today and, and every day. Thank you. 
Oh, it never goes past me what a privilege it is that people trust this beautiful neighborhood so much with their stories in such vulnerable moments of their lives. As I've mentioned before, ours are just two among a million different experiences and I'm sure there's a lot we didn't cover in the spaces between what, what we've been through or are going through, but there is just so much to the conversation about fertility and conception and I think we're taught so little at a time that gives us enough notice to actually do something with. So I so appreciate people as well known as Erin being so raw and generous with their stories to help encourage more conversation and awareness around what's involved. And I would love you, neighborhood, to show your gratitude by helping share the episode and tag at Erin V. Holland and ask with your insights or takeaways so that we can keep the conversation going, but also show Erin our love for everything that she shared. If anyone is interested in any further episodes on the topic or expert Q&As, you know we're always open to suggestions and requests. So please just send us an email or a DM on a very different note, but it's sort of connected, I guess, to the fertility conversation. The adoption episode is also coming up, which is another beautiful conversation, and I can't wait to share that. To our listeners on their own journeys, however that may be unfolding, I'm sending you all the love in the world. And in the meantime, I hope everyone is having a great week and seizing their yay. 